You're listening to TIP. As some of our listeners know, I run a very concentrated portfolio. Until recently, I only owned four stocks, but I just added a fifth. In this quarter's mastermind meeting, I'll outline why I did that and walk you through the bold thesis. As usual, I'm joined by my good friends, Tobias Carlyle and Hari Ramachandra. Toby is pitching a wonderful value pick, Amgen, and Hari is presenting Disney, a company with one of the strongest brands in the world. Speaking of strong brands and competitive modes, we end the conversation talking about Microsoft-backed chatbot GPT versus Google's BARD. I hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as we did. So without further ado, here's this quarter's Mastermind Meeting. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm here for the Q1 2023 Mastermind Meeting. Together with Harry and Toby, as always, how are you today, gents? Hey, Stig. Hey, Harry. Good to see you guys again. Yeah, good to see you guys. Fantastic. Doing fantastic, Stig. Thank you for inviting us back. Always. Always, gents. So the market has been crazy. I'm supposed to say it's always, but it seems like right now, I mean, after 2022, when we saw that bear market and then the market has bounced here, at least so far here in 2023, we do see a lot of volatility right now. So it's very exciting. And perhaps we should just jump right into it and talk about the picks. Hari, you have Disney and Toby, you have Amgen. Who wants to go first? Flip a coin. <laughs> All right. I can go first. Yeah. So I think the market is definitely schizophrenic. It's like every week, the mode is different. So I don't know how Disney will be positioned by the time we go on air for this episode, but Disney has been my long Long-time favorite. I think most of us grew watching Disney characters, and so are our kids. And I'm a captive subscriber to Disney Plus, and will be for many years to come, till my kids uh, grow out of it. But the reason I'm pitching Disney is it's in a very interesting market or ecosystem, and it's playing in that, but it has some inherent advantages. So as uh, Professor Ashwat Damodaran recently on CNBC described that the direct-to-consumer or streaming content business model is fundamentally broken, thanks to Netflix. They have driven up the cost exorbitantly, and hence they have kind of, you know, started this uh, war for talent and war for content, and it's almost like all these mega players like Apple, Amazon, and Netflix, Disney, and everybody else outbidding each other. So it's good for content creators and might not be as good as for the content aggregators. And I see Disney as like a railroad in this context. All right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like uh, they have some inherent advantages that others don't. First of all, they have a huge inventory of content that is evergreen. I don't know how many times we can watch House of Cards or any other show, uh, latest show, but I can tell you based on my experience, my daughter can watch the same Disney episodes many, many times and the same movies. I've sat and watched Cinderella with her for more than a dozen times already. And I guess I'll continue to do that. So there are very few other media houses 
or even the direct-to-consumer streaming businesses like Netflix or Apple that can come up with a evergreen content. It's very rare. And the second thing is the sheer volume of content, both through organic production and through acquisitions of Marvel, Pixar, Fox. They have over time, so it's been like more than 50 years in the making, that they have aggregated these contents. And the reason I said I compare it to railroads is because if somebody wants to build a new rail railroad today, the cost of acquisition of land is so high that it's almost impossible to create a new track. And somehow even for content, I'm trying to use the same analogy because Disney produced Cinderella or whatever the, uh, uh, shows they sh produced back in the day, they're still run today. And on Disney Plus Day, you can even see the year of production, 1956 or 1949. The cost was really low or insignificant in today's price context. But to produce something that can be as successful today will cost much, much more. And it's almost prohibitive for many players. So that's one advantage. The second advantage they have is that they have other sources as well to reach to customers. One of them is the pay television even though everybody is kind of dunking on it and there is a lot of cable cutting going on but still 60 percent of u.s household watch pay television so it's not like it's going to go away tomorrow however i think the more interesting piece they have is their parks and cruises as demonstrated by the public failure of metaverse people still like to go places that's also in their quarterly result this time their revenue grew 21% for their parks compared to last year. So as soon as the pandemic was over, people are rushing to the parks because they want to go there before their kids turn teenagers and don't want to talk to them anymore. And, and I'm, I'm one of them. Like as soon as I could, I took my kids to Disneyland in Los Angeles. And then they also have a foot in the future with their Disney Plus, Hulu bundle with ESPN Plus. So they kind of are capturing that market as well. I think it's in a nascent stage. Their losses are reducing. For example, compared to previous quarters, their losses is kind of you know steadily declining. In fact, this time it, the loss was better than expected in the sense lower than expected. And their revenues are steadily growing at 8%. But I think for me, the reason I am interested in Disney at this point of time is one, return of Bob Iger. There was a fundamental cultural shift that was happening, which was in the long run not good for Disney. That is centralizing both the creative and distributive uh, decision making. And Bob Iger is basically returning it back to the original state. So that's good for Disney. And also he's talking about cost restructuring there might be even a spin-off of ESPN because I feel that is their weakest link because one, the sports content is not evergreen. Its shelf life is kind of much less than other content. And there is a huge bidding war for these events, whether it's WWE or any of the games. And if Disney is able to spin off or sell it off because that's not their core strength anyway, that might be the catalyst for both their growth in their trading margins as well as profits. So there are certain risks as well to this talk. For example, I feel 
the biggest risk for them is if they continue to be in businesses that are not their com- their core strengths like sports, ESPN, and they get carried away in the bidding wars with Netflix and Apple and other players and become irrational. And the second risk is that their exposure to the general economic weaknesses, like, you know, whether ads or park visits or subscribers, they can all go down when there is economic weakness. But I think one of the key things to watch out in case of Disney is, are they able to still churn out good creative contents? I think that is their IP. They have a huge pool of talent and are they able to organically come up with good content that will keep them going. Otherwise, over over the long run, that is what I would be worried about. So today, their price to earning, I'm pretty sure Toby will not like it. <laughs> and and knowing you, Stig, I don't. I know that I'm actually I'm, I'm getting ready for your counterpoints on those aspects, especially with 65 PE ratio. But the reason I'm pitching is the PE ratio is based on the current earnings, and without significant growth in revenue, I'm expecting. I'm not expecting more than six to seven percent revenue growth for them over the next couple of years for the foreseeable future. But what I'm expecting is that they will take some measures, especially with the encouragement of activist investors who have taken major stake in the company. They will engage in significant cost restructuring. They've already announced job cuts, reduction in non, non-park expenses and stuff like that. So I expect that to continue and their profits to improve and their earnings to increase and their P ratio to come down. And in the long run, as this model of streaming is broken until it is fixed, I feel Disney has the most strongest position actually among the players to come out better as they're diversified and they don't need to engage in this bidding war. So that's my pitch and I'm ready for your questions. I like Disney as a business. I like Disney as a company. I think that's a I think that the idea of having IP that appeals to little girls mostly. And then I, I know they have other, they own Marvel and so on for boys. But the little girls get that Disney princess and then they can remember who the Disney princess was, who they sort of attached to and they remain attached to that, I think, for most of their lives. So it's a, it's a powerful connection if they can make it. The question that I have is, given that that is so important, my, I have a nine-year-old daughter who we have Disney as well. And I, I sort of, I'm interested in which movies that the kids want to watch because I have a five-year-old boy, a seven-year-old boy, and they're not really interested in the Disney princess-driven movies. And so, the only way we're going to watch those movies is if my daughter and I want to watch it. So, I quite like Moana. I want to watch Moana. She wants to watch Moana, but she doesn't connect to Moana. She connected to Elsa, but Elsa, she was a little bit young. So, she really hasn't had a princess for a little while in there. She's sort of, I think she's sort of sailing through a little bit and they're going to miss her if they don't get a princess for her in there sometime soon. So, I just wonder, you know, how important is that to connect with them early on? Do they have a lot of other content too? They have all of the Marvel stuff. They have Pixar. Although Pixar, my kid, it's funny, I, I sort of, I'm intensely interested in which of those things my kids connect to and they don't, they don't really seem to have connected to any of it really for a little while, I think. 
maybe the pandemic stopped some of the production. What do you think about that? Is that an issue that anybody discusses or is that totally peculiar to me? No, I think that's a very good point, Toby. And, and you're absolutely right. If they don't keep updating their characters to the current generation, there is a significant chance that they will miss on making those connections with them, like how they have made with the previous generations. And that is the risk I see. And that's why I, I felt comfortable when Bob Iger came back and he said, like, you know, creativity and profitability. That's, these are the two key things that he will be focusing on. He's like back to creativity. I think that gives me comfort. My son connects to Pixar movies quite a bit, like Incredibles or Cars. So, but I, I guess it's like each kid has their own preference. And that's, that's the key that they have to really understand their market segment. And I feel Disney Plus, more than a revenue generator, I see it as a cost center for them because it is kind of aggregating user feedback and user preferences, which they, it's very hard for them to do through movie theaters. But this is an amazing platform they have. And I'm pretty sure they will have a good analytics team looking at all these things because Netflix has mastered that model. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I was that was that was my next question. To what extent did they need to own something like Disney Plus? But if that if there's a feedback mechanism, that does make a lot of sense. My kids don't like, and I think that, that you know, f- for us, we have stuff that was made in our lifetime. We consider to be you know newish, and I think they feel the same way. So I try to show them stuff that's just a little bit before their time, and they think the animation's too old. They don't want to watch it. I've tried to show like. You know, the very first thing that they made, um, I'm blanking out a little bit. Is it Alice in Wonderland? Earlier ones. That's, very, that's the, like the very first thing they made. I went back and watched that with them. I thought it was absolutely spectacular for the time when they hand drew all of it. I think it's an incredible movie. If you haven't seen it in like your adult life, you should go back and watch it because it's fantastic. But for my kids, it was just torture. They were just like, this is too old. And I've showed them progressively like stuff all the way up to probably just before Pixar was acquired and they're not interested in any of that stuff. It's sort of like they want that newer looking stuff. Absolutely. I think that that is the key. I guess you brought up an interesting point, Toby. Maybe the content they produced long time back is something the adults watch and, and the newer stuff is watched by the kids. I guess, Hari, that, that part is still important. I gave my two nieces, they're eight and, and 10, a trip to, to Disneyland. They really want to eat a pancake with a princess, and it's like 150 bucks per kit. I don't know if it's if if pancakes are included. And so it's like 45 minutes. You could get a photo with a princess, and apparently there are pancakes too. Who knows? And you're like, and, and you hear yourself saying things like, "That sounds like a great idea." And so whenever something like that happens, you just know that there's just something there, right? Like. Would I have done the same thing if it wasn't a Disney princess? If it was, I don't know. You said House of Cards. I don't think necessarily think they're directly. Comp- uh, <laughs> I watched House of Cards four times, and I, I didn't see any any Disney princess in there for for sure. But like, would we do that for our kids? For Netflix's franchise, I don't know. There's something there, and you know, Disney just turned 100 years, and uh, the Economist had like a, a fantastic series of articles about that, and. And anyone who's interested in investing in Disney, I would, I would highly recommend reading those. But 
I remember saying a long time ago to a friend of mine that whenever Disney hit a hundred bucks, I would buy. And what happened was that, you know, they hit like 86 or something like somewhere in the eighties. And I chickened out, you know, as it very often happens, partly because whenever something tanks, a lot of other things also tank, but Disney tanked more than, than other stocks for, for a number of reasons. So partly we have the leadership issue. I think the market team that are really excited about getting Bob Iger back and like who, who wouldn't. But the task that he has now are just, are just different. Uh, coming in, he has two years to hand it off. And we've we all, we all forgotten everything that happened with the Eisner and like the whole, when everything just exploded. And like Iger came in and he saved the day and, you know, he bought Pixar, he bought Marvel and like those, those type of eco projects that just never works out. And they did work out, which is just amazing in itself. And so I guess I would be a bit worried about that, like what's, what's going to happen. I guess that's also part of the, why it's trading. I think at the time recording is trading at $113. So it is a wonderful stock. I also want to say like in, in Horace defense, whenever he talked about uh, PE ratios and, and, and so forth. So one of the things that we've, that we learned whenever the interest rate was low and everyone just started investing some with success and, and, and others uh, not so much was to, uh, to have increased focused on normalizing earnings. And I'm, I'm saying that because I'm going to pitch the stock afterwards. <laughs> That's going to look ridiculous too. So I'm, I'm sort of like doing it to, to ask for forgiveness. But, you know, the streaming services, they're, they're losing at Disney Plus, they're losing a billion dollars a quarter. And so it would be outrageous to say that it has no value. Of course it has value. But like if, if you, have to, you have to normalize earnings if, if you want to do that. If you look at where Disney makes their money, they make slightly more on cable and broadcast channels. Here in 2022, they did like around $8 billion in operating income and the parks were experiencing products are slightly less. And of course, whenever you look back, you have to remember we also had COVID. So the parks experienced in pro- products didn't rebound before fiscal year of 2022. And so it doesn't look as crazy. Like if you just like take a look at it, you're like, oh my God, that looks ridiculous. It doesn't look as ridiculous as it might sound like. I do agree with you, Hari, that they have a stronger position in streaming. I guess my question is, one of the concerns I have is, do you want to compete in that space? You know, it, it's, it's one of those where, yes, they are better, but are they like one of the better in a terrible industry? And I, I don't know about that. Like whenever you look at some of the money, money that Amazon is spending right now, and, you know, Apple have started, you know, <laughs> with that thing too. And of course you have Netflix, you know, it's just, I mean, one of Netflix production companies reached out to us to create a series about us for crying out loud. That just means they must be pretty desperate. That was sort of like, sort of like my take on it. But, you know, it's like that type of like volume game and like what, what you see happening right now, it just seems to be one of those where they just pressure each other's martins. And that's also what you're seeing now. You have this narrative about Disney. And I want to say that Disney probably have more synergies than whenever Netflix are doing not now starting to do their, oh, come and you know, we have the gaming also. I guess I see other synergies with Disney than I do see with, with Netflix, but it's just a, just a tough, tough industry that they're in. So I guess that's, that's my, my two cents. Yeah, no, I think the great points, Stig, especially the last one that you mentioned is like, do they want to be in the streaming war? And my proposition is actually they can participate peripherally and limit the damage compared to other players. Because the way I think about Disney is they are in the business of creating assets that can be monetized for a long time. It's almost like a pharmaceutical company or, a, you know, think about it that way. And I think Toby reminded me that they do have an expiry date and like a pharmaceutical company, the IP goes up after a while. But like, think about every character like that they have 
created, whether it is Elsa or Moana, 10, 12 years after the movie comes in, they're monetizing it in their parks and their merchandising and a lot of other ways, basically. And for, for me, it's like, if you think about Disney, they're not really doing anything special for streaming. All they're doing is they're taking their offline content that they would have produced anyway for movies and then digitizing it and putting it in the on their streaming service. So, like, let's say they didn't have Disney+, Plus, they would still come up with Avatar as a movie. Now, you have Avatar special edition making of Avatar on Disney+, Plus, and then finally, you'll have Avatar at some point on Disney+, Plus that people can watch as well. So, that is the reason I feel they're better positioned in the streaming war. In fact, they don't have to participate, but still benefit. They have these little spin-offs too. My daughter loves uh, The Descendants. Do you know what that show is? It's like the, all of the Disney villains, like Maleficent and so on, they have these angsty teenage kids who get up to shenanigans at high school. And so that's my, my daughter's favorite show. So that's another Disney property. So that's a good argument for them that they can repackage that IP over and over again for different audiences. And all of those, those Disney villains, and those, that, that's, that's very old stuff. It's all the very classic ones from back in the kind of golden age, their kids. And I think you bring up a good point, Hari. Like they don't have to pay Tom Cruise $100 million to do Top Gun 2, right? Like they, they own the IP and, and you know, the characters aren't, aren't as expensive. I, I did hear someone from, I think it was a, a Hollywood producer who said that one of the concerns that they felt about their, the movies uh, was that they were not as captivating as back in the olden day because they didn't have the big screen. It's harder to build that franchise today because of that, but also because you don't get the same type of wow experience because so much is now produced for the streaming services. They're not produced for the big screen. On the valuation piece, my main thesis is that PE is high today, but the denominator, the earnings will keep going up. Right now, they don't have to do much in terms of growing the revenue, and that's the, that's the sweet spot they are in. They, I think, have distracted themselves. Personally, I feel ESPN is a distraction. It doesn't add value to their franchisee. It is just kind of an empire-building exercise that happen, that happens in many companies. And if they can get rid of such non-value accretive franchises or assets, uh, not only will they improve their balance sheet, but they'll also improve their earnings to me, will be a catalyst. So in that sense, I feel right now they're at least, they can improve their earnings by 30, 40% over a period of three to five years. And relatively, the stock price will also improve. So that's that's my kind of back of the envelope math, if you will. My fair value comes around 150 to 170, depending on how you look at it. See, I see, I got a three, 3% free cash flow yield in a market where the 10-year is over four and a half and probably going higher from here. So, that says to me that the free cash flow yield has to come up quite a lot before. I don't know how much growth you're, you you can rely I mean, it's been I, – I sort of – I feel like the, the number for me, and I admit it, I'm a very conservative deep value investor. So, Disney's sort of not really – in my 
area of strength. So for me, it looks expensive, and I would I would say even a hundred is expensive for me. Like I would want it down in the honestly somewhere between fifteen and thirty dollars is sort of my range to get a reasonable return out of it. That might be too harsh. It's possible that they do some rationalizing, spin off some of the spin off ESPN, you know, right size Disney Plus. Maybe all of that changes the the uh, the valuation. But yeah, I think it has the core of a very good business there. But I also think the market is a little bit uh, over its skis. For you know, if you're looking at a long a long enough period of time where the valuation starts to matter, I would be much more comfortable of quite a bit lower than here. I, I don't mean to be too aggressive on that, Harry, because I do like Disney, and I like you too. It's not it's nothing personal. It's just that's my bias. I just I prefer stuff to be closer to fair value. So you said I just want to make sure, Toby. You said fifteen to thirty, and then Harry, you said one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy. Like that. <laughs> is, is, is that sort of like? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a wide range here. Like we we are talking yeah. about a very wide range. But this is a three percent free cash flow yield in a market where, you know, you can get risk free, pretty good rates. And I my bias is probably that that risk free rate is going higher still. You know, in a market where you get to six percent on the ten year, which is the long run trend, the very long run trend, and who knows if we get there or not, but. That is the long run trend. You know, a 3% free cash flow yield for Disney, admittedly a growing 3% free cash flow yield. Like, where should that trade quite a bit lower to get to, you know, to de risk it and get to get down there? I think there's been a little bit of a regime change in the market where previously really high rates of growth, really good IP, protect, uh, competitive position, and so on. That was probably more important than valuation. And I think that was from like 2015 to 2022 or 2021. I think that the market is changing a little bit right here and uh, it's going to be more of a you know show me kind of market for a while at least i think that's a fair point toby i think especially considering the risk free rate today and for the foreseeable future it becomes really hard to justify a three percent pre-cash flow yield in that sense i feel from a timing perspective this might not be a great timing i see disney more as a long-term bet that i can buy at a price that is not exorbitant, where I can park my funds safely for some decent returns for a long period of time. But is this price the right price? I think I'm also not very sure. So I would be more comfortable when it gets below 100, for sure. I said 100 before. I do think that the intrinsic value is lower than 100. So how do you square that circle? Partly is that when I, whenever I originally made a valuation of Disney, the interest rate was very different. So we also also have to remember that. So to, to Toby's point before about what's, what's the 10-year, and as we all remember, not too long ago, the 10-year was almost non-existing. I guess another reason is that I see the competition differently now in the in streaming services. And it is sort of like, how much is something worth that, that's losing a billion dollars a quarter? Like we can, we can probably do an entire series on how to value that. But of course, it has, it has some value. But if you look at it, like the really attractive thing here would be the uh, park experience and products. And just, I know we can, we can take that income segment, you know, a long way back, but we're around like seven, eight billion. Then, then you have, you know, what's a cable broadcast, let's call it eight billion-ish. Like that's a dying segment. It's slow and steady, but it is, it is, you know, in the wrong direction. And of course you can, you can also make the argument, you know, that it does create some barriers entry to some extent. Because it's not, it's not a, it's not a market a lot of uh, competitors want to enter because it is declining. But then you also have to remember that there are a lot of different things today that can substitute cable and broadcast channels. So 
I don't know. I, I'm, I'm definitely below 100 today on the intrinsic value because of, of those, those reasons. The thing about Disney, though, the thing that it does have, and I think we alluded to this at the start, was that there is this transition from the pipes to the content creators. And it, it, that has always been the, that, you know, you can go back and look at broadcast TV, cable, and so on. There has always been an initial value bump to the, to the pipes, but it has always, the value has always trended back to the content creators. So it's good to be a content creator. And they have these two machines. They've got Disney Animation and Pixar, both of which are very good, and Marvel now. Like all of those are really great content IP libraries and content creators. Like that's, that is where I see all of the value in this thing. And, and the parks. The parks is a way of monetizing that and all of the Disney stores is a way of further monetizing that. I think their problems are the streaming, but you, you, you point out that that's a way of generating analytics. It's $4 billion a year in analytics could you get that cheaper? I don't know. Maybe somewhere else. ESPN, that's a tough asset because it's there's so many places to get your sport now. And ESPN sort of become a political, they've, they've taken a political view on a lot of the things. It's turned off half of the population already in a market where the, it's, the bundle's going away. And so you have to pay, you have to like actively seek it out and pay for it. And there are other options. But, you know, there's still the core of this amazing IP there that is valuable. And I, I would want to de-risk a lot before I would want to have a look at something like that. But I can see, you know, Disney's not going away. Disney's not a donut. So there's a, there's a lot going for it. It's go, it's, you really have to do a lot to hurt that franchise. But sometimes it feels like they are doing a lot to hurt that franchise, honestly. To your point, Tobin, we all, you know, being students of, of Buffett and talks about that replacement cost of, of Disney. Like that would be humongous, right? Even for this company with an EV of 250 plus billion, it's tough. I, I'm sure that there are extra amounts to, it came up with this interesting stat here because today, whenever you include Hulu and ESPN, they're the biggest in the world and Netflix is number two. They have, what do we have? They have a bit more than 200 million uh, subscribers. 61 million of them are in India. The main reason why they do that is for cricket and it's 58 cents a month. So I just, I just think it's important whenever you you look at those numbers, like some of those are, are vanity metrics to, to some extent. Plenty of pricing power there. Plenty of, just Plenty keep of pricing power. Margin of. Yes. <laughs> I saw a statistic that of the dollars, every dollar spent in cricket globally, something like 89 cents of it comes from India. Yeah, I can imagine that. It's practically a religion in India. All right. Anything more here to Disney before we move on? Well, I think this was really good insights. Thank you. I think... Uh, some of the facts that you brought up actually does make sense to me. And I will go back and revise my fair value based on some of the points that you brought up, Toby and Stig. So thank you. That was very helpful. Thank you for, for saying so. And, and Hari, please make sure to push back whenever you hear my pick because my pick is facing a lot of the same competitors. So you can, you can just throw it back into my, back my face afterwards. But I don't know, Toby, would it be okay if I go next? Because it's yeah, please, please. somewhat... I don't know if it's uh, how much related it is, but thank you. Thank you, Toby. Mine will be very short and sweet, so you can stick mine at the end. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So, Jens, my pick is is Spotify. And it's not the first time that I have pitched that here to the group. I bought it originally back in June 2020 and sold it 318 January 2021. And, you know, this is, my, this is my humble brag. This is actually not so much a humble brag. And what happened now is that I bought it at 78, whenever it buttoned out, ah, close to buttoned out in December, and it's trading 123 at the time of, of recording. So let's call it 57% return in two months. But who, who's counting, right? <laughs> no, this is not... Well done, this is, well done. congrats. <laughs> hey, Jens, this is just because I'm usually wrong in my picks, so... Uh, whenever, you know, it's the broken, uh, broken clock theory. Whenever it happens, then right twice a day. Um, <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to bring it up. But guys, let me give you the, the pitch of uh, Spotify. The business model is somewhat simple. It's a service where you can stream uh, music, you can listen to podcasts, and more recently, you can also buy audiobooks. They have two tiers, a premium subscription with no ads and access to all the features, and then a free version with ads and you like some of the features. And the main purpose of the free tier is to convert to users to being paid users. 
If you if you read the financial statements, you can see that all the money is being made by premium subscribers, and it looks like the ad-supported uh, gross margin is just around five percent. So it, it it looks like it's barely breaking even, and that's that's true. But also they put a lot of the cost, a lot of the content creation uh, in that segment too. So it's just something to 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 consider. Spotify was founded in Stockholm, Sweden. It's technically registered in Luxembourg today uh, due to tax reasons. It was founded in twenty. 20- 06, and was the first company to bring streamed music to the masses. As some of the listeners might remember, this was at the time where iTunes ruled the world. They had access to uh, 800 million credit card details at the time. Steve Jobs has publicly said that no one wanted to rent music, so he had like a really hard time seeing how you could disrupt iTunes. I kind of feel I want to give him a pass on that one because he's been right in, in so many other things, but it does show you how brutal uh, capitalism is. With 30% market share, Spotify is by a large margin the biggest streaming, the biggest music streaming service in the world. And whenever Spotify launched, they were really at the mercy of the major labels. And whenever I, I refer to labels, so EMI, Sony Music, Universal, Warner Music Group, together they have more than 85% of the market share. So what you see now after Spotify made agreements with all of these labels, what you see now is that a lot of the, the smaller competitors, I'm not just talking about the main competitors like YouTube Music and Apple Music and whatnot, they're using, to some extent, the type of contracts that were pioneered uh, back then by Spotify. So Spotify, for obvious reasons, knew from the very beginning that they needed to limit the influence of the labels. The labels really pushed hard against free music. This was at the time of, of Naspers and Pirate Bay and all of that. And so like today, it seems like an obvious thing to go to Spotify and whatnot, but it, that was not the case at all back then. And one of the things that they had to do to get them on board was to give them equity at the time. And you might be saying that sounds completely counterintuitive. How can you say that's part of independence if they give equity to the, to the labels? Well, as it turned out, some of those, a lot of that was sold back during the IPO in 2018, but also they made agreements where the co-founders, Daniel Egg and Mark Lawrenson got the, the voting rights, even though they did. Uh, um, so it's sort of like, it's more like European system, but you can more or less compare it to AMB shares. In the States, it's not completely the same that happened here, but they still remain in control today even though they do not have a majority of the, the equity. So music streaming is just a tough business. It's, a, it's an absolutely terrible business. I want to say it might be marginal better than streaming, but you know I, I, can, I can completely agree. I, I completely sympathize with, with Hari if he wants to bring up the bats whenever I was talking about music streaming. The gross margins are in the 25% range. If you look at this for, for Spotify, it probably will be a bit higher as we go along for, for different reasons, perhaps we can get to later. And that's also one of the reasons why uh, they're going to podcasting. So I want to point out the irony of that because the business case for going into podcasting is that partly they're independent from the labels, but also because they're, they're lowering the production cost per listener. But then you can make the same argument for streaming services. And I just, uh, <laughs> I just bashed that. Uh, but you do have better margins with podcasts than music. You can't really scale music in terms of uh, ex- expanding margins. Spotify would more or less have the same margins with music if they were half or twice as big. And if you look into how Spotify calculate the cost of goods sold in financial reporting, it all looks like a, like a big mess. The, w- the way to really understand that is just going to shamelessly promote this book. I think that's it's one of the good sources to, to understand. Oh, I, for those of who actually, it doesn't really make sense. I just put this up to the camera whenever this is, a, this is a podcast. It's called Spotify Play. So you can sort of like reverse engineer some of those things of how they're constructed, but they probably won't be getting 
much higher gross margins, probably a few percentage points higher than what they do today. But it's, it's not going to be like, oh, we're just going to scale and then we're going to have you know, half the cost or anything like that. That's just not how, how those contracts work. Of course, for podcasts, which is the second business, uh, second biggest business unit, and perhaps in time could be the biggest, who knows? They are betting really, really hard on that. Even so much that Daniel Ek, uh, the, the CEO, has said that he probably got carried away in 2022. But they have their premium content that's only available for, for paid subscribers. Some of their acquisitions have been quite good in the podcasting space. There have also been a few dots in between. That's, that's how it goes. And so uh, what I want to highlight is that in 2018, Spotify came out basically from nothing and said, we're going to be the biggest in podcasting. And at the time, you know, there were only Apple Podcasts and more or less no one else. There were, there were, there were other platforms, but no one anywhere near uh, Apple Podcasts. And, you know, you also had Apple Podcasts, you know, pre-installed on iPhones. You know, there, there are so many things where you could say, how can Spotify ever compete with Apple Podcasts? And here we are. They're bigger than Apple Podcasts in a bit more than four years. It's just amazing what they have achieved. As someone who is an insider in the podcasting space, I can say that they're both the best studios. They have the best companies in the podcast ecosystem. They're just miles ahead of everyone else whenever it comes to advertising, attribution. And I can say that because I've used their, their paid tools uh, for years on a daily basis. And I, I speak with them on a regular basis. Like they know what they're doing. And let me just give you an anecdotal example. So we have three shows here in the feed you're listening to right now. So we have We Study Billionaires, the one you're listening to right now. We have President's Bitcoin Show. And we have Williams, Richard Wise, and Happier Show. So if you listen to this on Spotify, you can see that. You can see the artwork change. Apple Podcasts have said the past two years that they're going to get right to it. And it hasn't happened. Like everything with Apple Podcasts is just like a black box. They still have the auto download function, which is just like a no one advertises just hate it. And you know, Spotify is just they got to figure it out. So if I had to sum it up, I would say that Spotify is best positioned in this space. So let's, uh, let's transition to talking about competitive advantage and competitors. So whenever I look at Spotify's competitors, they're mainly competing with Apple Music, Amazon Music and YouTube Music. And that order, Spotify's market share is just above 30%, Apple Music 13, Tencent, they're not really competing with, with, with Tencent. Actually, they also own share in each other's companies, which is sort of like a different story, but that's a 13 too. And then they have Amazon Music, that's 13, and YouTube, that's 9%. So this might sound a bit counterintuitive whenever I say that they have this huge advantage that they're an audio platform first, because then you could say, what about Netflix? You just talked about how you know, Netflix do not have the same benefits as, as Disney, even though they're just focused on one thing. You might be thinking that Spotify is at a disadvantage, for example, compared to, to Apple Music, because Apple Music, since it's pre-installed on their app, Spotify is basically depending on you know, Apple as a toll bridge. And I wanted to, to talk a bit more about that whenever it comes to risk, because it might be slightly different. But in short, they're they're created for all platforms, as opposed to, for example, something that's on iOS or Android. But let me give you an example of not being an audio platform, audio first platform. So Google have gone back and forth on whether they wanted to display a play button in the browser for whenever you search for a podcast. And you might be thinking, well, you know, Google, they own YouTube music, so that's an advantage. But the thing is that audio is just such a low priority for Alphabet or for Google that now they removed it. Like they have so many other priorities that the way that Google because you know, that's where they make all the money. The way that works together with podcasts isn't efficient at all because 
it's not about audio. And so, you know, when, whenever you whenever you go through also the the earnings calls, like for for obvious reasons, it's just clear whenever you listen to what Daniel Ek is saying in the uh, in the transcripts that it's driven all by audio, and you don't hear any of that whenever you you go through what Alphabet are doing, Apple and Amazon. Which again, it's also it's also Amazon's value proposition is slightly different because it's part of Amazon Prime. So. I wanted also to to have I have a section about risk. I also wanted to talk to you about, but I also want to start a different place. Do you know the person who doing a job interview says something ridiculous like the biggest weakness is that he works too hard? You know, you know, that that kind of ridiculous <laughs> response. So care too much, care too much, yeah. stuff like that. So with that in mind, and the irony of me saying that, uh, <laughs> let me go to to this point about risk. So I also want to say that there is an opportunity with the risk that Spotify has because they are competing with Google and they're competing with Apple and you need those devices to access Spotify. Of course, you can also go to your laptop and I don't know, go to Firefox and what like, you know what I mean? Like, in effect, that's not how you how you how you use uh, Spotify today. I see it as a problem, but I probably also see it as an opportunity in the sense that as anyone with an iPhone knows, they are selling Apple Music hard. And despite that, Spotify is still more than twice as big as Apple Music. And also, Apple Music requires for you to use an iPhone. And so what has happened with Spotify is that from the very beginning, they lived on all platforms, not just smartphones, because is obviously the, the biggest medium, but they lived on all platforms or mediums because they had to do that. There was just ingrained in them. You can have the same criticism about the whole Android system, e- ecosystem, if you, if you want. It might sound ironic, but to me, that's not right now what I'm mainly concerned about. Of course, this is in tech. This is like a sexy field. There, you have a lot of interns that want to go into this field, which you just know by definition, you don't want to into a field like that. But I guess that the elephant in the room is not so much the competition from Apple Podcast and from YouTube Music. I also, like I mentioned before, I don't, I think Amazon Prime and, and what they do through Amazon, Amazon Music is, is interesting. They, they bought Wondery, which is one of the better podcasting studios, but they have a different strategy. It's a strategy of making sure that people stick with, with Amazon Prime. They're doing a great job. They're doing great things in advertising, but I do not consider them the, the main competitor. One thing I would like to, to highlight that sort of like have come in from, from a field here a few years ago has been TikTok. That's, you know, we have all of these rumors about how they are going to start signing their own artists and how that's going to disrupt the entire music industry. And they're also the target group. What's, what's the, where do you have the most, the biggest discrepancy between the overall public and what Gen Z is like? That's TikTok. Uh, Spotify is number six on that list, by the way. And so to me, that's a, that's a big risk that some people, but not a lot of people talk about. It's someone who has, depending on how you measured it, close to no market share, but could get a huge market share. Very, very soon. And then I have a, I have a segment about, about valuation, but I, I kind of feel it's been a long pizza already. So I want to sort of like open up and then perhaps for any questions, any thoughts, and then perhaps we can together walk through evaluation. I think Spotify is an interesting pick because it's the opposite of, of Harry's pick. So Harry had the content, you got the pot. And Spotify, I think, is one of those really interesting business success stories for those reasons that you outlined, that they're really in hostile territory on an iPhone where they're pushing iTunes hard. iTunes had a huge lead. They had to overcome that and they've managed to do that. So, you know, hats off to Dan Eck and whoever else is in there who's responsible for that 
the the issue that I see is the one that I sort of articulated in relation to Disney in the sense that it tends to be this drift from value for the pipe to value for the content producer. And the content producer in this part is the musicians and the podcasters. And to Spotify's, you know, Spotify's sought to overcome that issue by getting exclusive access to certain podcasts. Probably the most famous one is Rogan, who they pay him $100 million. But again, Rogan's political and polarizing and that potentially alienate half your audience and also potentially some of your you know, there was a, a lot of the musicians asked for their music to be taken off Spotify because they didn't want to be associated with Rogan and so on. The, the issue that I see is going to be one of valuation, naturally, because <laughs> that's, that's who I am. But when I look at it, it's a $29 billion market cap. It's got some debt in there as well. And it's got $12 billion in revenue. Admittedly, revenue is growing pretty quickly. None of that revenue is falling through to the bottom line at present because they're spending so much. I just wonder, at what point does it reach scale? Does that competition from iTunes ever go away? When they do, how much of it falls to the bottom line? And so, as an investor, you know, what do you actually end up owning? Because do you see the competition going away at any point? Because I don't think that, I don't see how that happens because it's iTunes and Apple are always going to be there because that's the dominant device that people listen to it on. Although I've downloaded it onto my television, I have Spotify so I can watch the, the podcasts on, on Spotify, mostly Rogan's, so I can watch it on Spotify. On, on the TV. But I find it, I sort of think this is at two times revs with nothing falling through to the bottom line. What, like at what level is scale? So great questions. Let me uh, start with the, with the thing you said about Rogan. Not to be political in any kind of way, what was interesting was that the artist came back. Like there was a huge discussion about all of that and then Neil Young and a few others and there's, they said, no, we don't want to do it. And then they came back. And one of the reasons is just that the, the tables have turned whenever it comes to, to the music industry. It used to be so that Spotify needed the labels. Now the labels need Spotify, which is interesting in itself. To your question about when do they reach scale, I think if, if you ask Daniel Ek, the CEO and co-founder, he would probably say never. He's, uh, he's a very interesting person. It's, it's, very, <laughs> it, it's very interesting to go through his interviews, and he's clearly been inspired by Jeff Bezos. And I, I know this is going to come off as ridiculous when, when I'm saying this, being, being a value investor and being wanting to have, to have a very conservative valuations, because there is an element of faith in this. Because whenever, whenever he talks about, you know, in 2030, the goal is 100, or sorry, the, the goal is um, 1 billion users. They are at 489 million right now. And he talks about making 100 uh, euros uh, per person or, or, or per user. That, that sounds pretty ridiculous to me. It sounds highly ambitious. And at that time, he, he thinks that they will have 4% gross margin. And, and right, I think right now, they have like 25, 26. And he talks about operating margin of 20% at that time, which is right now close to, close to non, non-existing. And so you might be thinking, is that possible? How are you going to see that margin expansion? One of the ways is that more revenue will come through non-music type of, of revenue. And they want to set up different type of verticals. So the first one for was, was podcasting. Then they have audiobooks that they just keep, uh, send out. Now, last quarter, they had 500 million bought audiobooks, which giving in the, in the quarter given it's just launched, it was, I was quite impressed by. And who knows what the next vertical could be. But And we can co- come back to what, a, what those verticals could be afterwards. But just talking about hitting, hitting scale, 
I think it's also important to look at whenever you look at, for example, the free cash flow, which, which has been more than $200 million over the past three years, you have a lot of growth capex in that. And they talk a lot about, it's not about short-term profit. It's about, <laughs> to use your word, like, uh, like hit, hit scale, get the users in and then start to, to monetize them. They also have a net, oh, sorry, a negative networking capital. There were some contracts that were leaked from back in the day. And I can't say if it's because these contracts are being renegotiated, but they get the money up front and then it takes four to five days before they have to pay the labels. Again, now we're talking about music. That is traditionally how they made made money. And so if we say that they got to do between 25 and 30 and gross margins, of course, to get to 40, they have to do a lot of other things that are not music, which is where where they've shown that they're successful. But I also think it's important whenever you talk about podcasting, not to be too f- fixated on, on the, the exclusive shows. I think, you know, when, whenever you hear about some of the, the beta studios and they're the exclusive for, for Spotify, I think you have to consider that the ecosystem that Spotify is built uh, up around. And so we talked with Spotify, just the MSS Podcast Network, not too long ago about hosting on that, their platform instead of another platform. And they make money based on that. They also make money based on how they, they sell advertising. So you cannot buy, you can't go to Joe Rogan's show now and say, I want to buy ads on your show. What they're doing is they're packaging and they're saying, okay, uh, mail between 18 and 34, yada, yada, yada. So like th- that's the way that, the, uh, that they sell that. So they have very personalized ads for everyone who are hosting on the platform. And they also bought Anchor, which is where new podcasts today start. It wasn't in the past, but they bought that. They have pod sites, Chartable, that's how you do attribution. And they have Megaphone, which is the leading hosting platform. We don't use it for different, different reasons, but like, I can see what, what they do. It's also because it's just a pain to, to move hosting and all that. But like, they buy the best assets. You can just see how much they understand the podcasting space. And it's very interesting to see also now how they include audiobooks in their app and how the, their competitors are not doing that because they're not audio first. And so I kind of feel like I'm selling them a bit too hard. Um, <laughs> um, if, you, if you believe in Daniel X's uh, projections, which you probably shouldn't, you won't last long in this game. If you, if, you, if you think that what management think is going to happen in seven years, there's a 100% probability in that happening. But you, know, you will have returned 30 plus percent a year next seven years. I don't think that's going to be the case, but I end up with a valuation around $200 ish today and you might be then be thinking well stake you said before like you sold at 318 that was like huge overvalued before you managed to sell it of course they also kept against tax and different things to consider but also remember again that the interest rate was very different back then so given the interest rate that we have now that's probably where i am but again like we talked about today it's you know all models are great if you have the right inputs so hari let me let me throw it over to you no, I think this is very interesting pick, Stig. And personally, I'm a fan of Spotify. It's almost like the Google for podcasting. Like many people use it, and it's almost synonymous with podcasting. Uh, where I see uh, risks are in the long term for this. It's it's almost like a toll bridge on a toll bridge. Like it's it's kind of in the Facebook realm in the sense they're dependent on or at the mercy of Apple and Google. But however, I feel um, probably they're not as uh, risky as Facebook in that sense uh, that Apple would do something to them. But where I am really concerned is the two things that 
uh, we discussed during Disney is one is they're a pure content aggregator. So their cost of content will keep going up for a period of time. The loyalty of the listeners is to the content creator, not to the channel. So if Joe Rogan or still you decide to move out of Spotify and go on YouTube only, I will listen to you on YouTube. So they can, because the cost of switching is easy. There's not much. I think this makes it risky for me in the long run because we don't know because they might, they, the content creators might have more leverage on them than they having leverage over the content creators. You know, I, I wish that was true, Hari. If you're listening to this on Spotify right now and you will, you're here ads that you're probably going to skip, but if you are listening to this on Spotify right now, these are agreements that we made with our sales team made with advertisers that are running from our feed that's hosted on a platform, in, in our case called Art19. Spotify does not make any money of that. Spotify could say to us, we're not going to pick up your feed unless you pay us. That would be really tricky for me to say no to. I would be willing, I hope they're not listening to this, but I'll be willing to pay a good price for us to continue to send that out to all our listeners on Spotify. Because Spotify, what they want is that you host on that platform called Megaphone. And if you do that, then they can sell the advertising. And if you have exclusive content, you can sell that on Spotify. And they take, I want to say right now it's 15% the first year and then it's 30% afterwards. But anyways, and so, so they have a lot of, of power right now around the, uh, the, the system. So I want to highlight that. And I also want to highlight that being on the app is very powerful because they control the discover function. So they can say, you listen to We Stay Billionaires, great. Why don't you also listen to Startup, like one of the bigger business shows, which is their show. And so one of the things that independent publishers like us are afraid of is that all the different studios have teamed up with different type of uh, different apps and they promote their stuff. They're not promoting our stuff. So I hope you're right that, that content creators have the bargaining power, Hari. I don't think it's, it's as powerful as I, I would have loved it to be. The other thing uh, is we had Brian Lawrence on the, on the podcast some time ago, and he, he, he had this quote. I can't remember which, which stock he was talking about, but I remember him saying that he really wanted to invest in companies where Google have tried to compete with them and fail. And I kind of like that way of thinking. Like, look at this company. They're, they're, they're first mover. They're dominant in the field. And they're the biggest by a big margin. And they're competing against Google, Amazon, and Apple. Like, there's, there's something there. There's something they can do. So it sort of like depends on, on how you look at it, of course, with that type of competition. But I'll be the first one to, to acknowledge, Hari, also to, to what I said to, to you about, to about Disney. It's a tough business to be in. And the barrier of entry that they used to, used to be in the music space are not there anymore. Just the way that the deals are being made with the labels today, it's much easier for new, new entrants using the Spotify manual if you want to. Uh, to start licensing uh, that music. I think that was a good summary. Thank you, Steve. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. All right. Thank you, Hari. Toby? Thanks, Dick. Mine is Amgen. It's an old, old biotech, biotech pioneer. Started in about 1980. It's trading today a little bit south of $240. It might be $238 or something like that. When I wrote it down, it was $240. Market cap's about $130 billion to get to that level. They've got about another, not quite $30 billion in debt. So enterprise value altogether is about $158 billion. Net debt of about $29 billion, as I mentioned. And that's generating about $11.5 billion in free cash flow a year. So the free cash flow yield to the enterprise value is in the order of 
seven plus percent. So free cash flow yield on the or the, the 10 years at four and a half. So it's very far north of that. The reason it's trading at a little discount that to um well that's a that's a wide discount to the 10 year is clearly the market expects some material decline in revenues over the over the foreseeable future. Biotechs are not something that I would typically I don't really like to pitch them as individual stocks. I do buy them and I own Amgen in full disclosure. I own it in Zig and I own it in I own it in Zig rather. And I don't know, you know, when I when I come to rebalance, it's entirely possible these things get rebalanced in or out. I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm entering into some sort of blood relationship with all of the other picks that I've had. I want to make it clear to everybody that my picks are largely quantitative. I like f- to look in the financial statements. I don't spend a lot of time looking at the business. It's mostly driven by the financial statements because I think that you get management's attitude to various things in the financial statements. And so I, f- I have a little bit of trouble often pitching biotechs because for the reason that Harry pointed out before, they've got kind of a limited period of time where they can earn all of the money from these drugs and then they become, they go off patent and the most successful ones get competed with very heavily. Having said that, when I say heavy competitions, you know, Charlie Munger talks about that like white glove gentlemanly kind of competition. And I think that that is really what prevails in biotech land because they never really, it's not that bare knuckle competition where they drive margins and profits to zero. They really do compete at a at a very genteel level and they all make pretty good returns on invested capital even after they've gone into off patent off patent world. I can I can mention all of the drugs that that these guys have, but there'll be somebody listening out there who knows this stuff really deeply. I I, I it's difficult to, to understand what the what the universe looks like after all of these things come off patent. The the problem for 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 Amgen in particular, they've had this very successful drug Enbrel that will gradually the, the profit from that will gradually decline. They've made some acquisitions and they produce things called biosimilars, which is like that's that's what competes with patents. So they've got this leading Humira is the number one selling drug in the world. And Humira is just about to come off patent. And they have a biosimilar that's about five months ahead of everybody else. That will be probably the thing that will generate pretty good revenues and cash flow growth in the future. The attraction that I have to Amgen is it's quantitatively cheap and they have this exceptional buyback record. Since about 2018, they've retired about 26% of their shares outstanding, which I like buybacks for a number of reasons, particularly when they're done at undervaluation. Amgen's been a, something that I have owned on and off for a very long period of time in various different accounts and funds that I've managed because they've been such a consistently strong repurchaser of, of stock. Because when it gets cheap, they buy back stock and it never really gets too overvalued. They sort of tend to be quite good at buying back. And then for all of the reasons that I articulated before about biotechs, they just never get particularly expensive. Although did, if you look at the chart, you'll see that it ran up to 290 last year. It's come back to 240. So who knows what ha- Lots of loopy things happened over the last few years. That's just one of them. So they're likely to continue to buy back the stock. In addition to that buyback, they've got a three and a half percent dividend yield, which is, or it's about three point two percent as of today. So they've got a very consistent record of paying dividends. They've they've paid dividends. They've raised the dividend consecutively for the last eleven years. The last five years, the compound annual growth rate in the dividend is about eleven percent a year. In addition to the buybacks, the the shareholder yield is monstrous, and it's driven by the fact that they've got a Free cash flow yield of over seven percent, so they've got plenty of headroom there. Their payout ratio is about forty-four percent. That's not going away anytime soon. They had a slowdown in revenue last year. They had two percent growth in revenue to the last quarter. 
that was actually driven by there was a 9% increase in volume, which is pretty healthy, but they had some Forex headwinds that reduced it by sort of 7%. So you can see that that might reverse at some point. The, the strong dollar hurts companies like, like Amgen. I, um, I like it because in, in very simple terms, it's priced as if the revenues will permanently decline from here. And um, they've been reasonably successful at making acquisitions and so on. And I think it's unlikely that revenues decline. I think it's much more likely that revenues grow, even if they just grow slowly from here. There's an enormous amount of headroom in this valuation. So they can make plenty of missteps. And I still think it's undervalued. You combine that with the fact that they're very good at buying back stock and they've got that great dividend yield plus pretty consistent growth. If you have a look at the stock chart, like the stock has been has been a very consistent returner for a very long period of time and it never gets too it never really falls out of bed because they're so good at buying back stock when it when it goes down they buy it. they buy it i just think this is one of those opportunities where you can buy some reasonably cheaply i own it as for an in-depth discussion about the competitive dynamics of this market i can't really help you and i don't think anybody else can either I think it's a really, really tough industry to know, which is one of the reasons I don't particularly like pitching these names individually. I own it as part of a basket of 30 stocks, all of which have characteristics like this. And I expect over my portfolio of stocks that these will generate pretty good returns. But as for any individual stock, I don't really know which one it will be. I pitched this one today because this is a, from my perspective, this is a reasonably frothy market. And I think I've discussed this before on the last podcast that I saw that that ten three inversion has historically preceded recessions pretty consistently. It's never had a false positive. We've gone, we've flipped negative now. Cam Harvey, who's the bloke who came up with that idea, has come out and faded it. He says, ignore my ignore my little indicator because there are all of these other things going on that mean that it's not it's not relevant this time. Cam Harvey said the same thing in two thousand and eight. He said, ignore it. It's likely to be a, a slower growth, not a recession. And as we all know, 2008 was one of the worst ones we've seen. So I think you can discount what he says a little bit. And I think you can pay a little bit more attention to the indicator. But he's by, far, by no means the only person who's saying it. There are lots of other people out there who say that the 10 is not relevant and it's not going to work this time. I don't have a view one way or the other. I just look at its track record and its track record is pretty good. I wouldn't trade on it in, on, in any way, shape or form. I just think it's worth considering particularly given that S&P 500 forward earnings have now gone negative and it's coincided with this incredible spike in the market since about October. And that's totally common too to every other point in time when you go back and look at every other real nasty bear market has looked the same way where there was this about a year in, there was this little recovery. I've always said it in 2000. 2008, we almost rallied back to all-time highs, happened in 2000, well, almost rallied back to two all-time highs before you really got the pain. I think that 2023 is likely where we see an enormous amount of pain. So I'm trying to pick things through here that I think are financially robust and will survive. We'll do something about the fact that they might get even further undervalued. And you know the, the, the end consumer of these drugs doesn't really care what the rest of the economy is doing. They're going to pay for this um, because they need these drugs to feel good and so on. So I think this is a reasonably safe bet with reasonably good to conservative returns, regardless of what happens to the global macro picture. And it's Amgen. That's my pick. Thanks, gents. Interesting pick, Toby. I think when you're talking about their patent 
expiring and the revenue falling off, I feel like it's almost like debt ceiling, like for these pharma companies, right? Like every now and then investors expect that their revenue will fall off and then somehow they manage to come up with a few more drugs. Happens to Johnson & Johnson and a lot of other companies that I've been following. But I, I like your basket approach for pharma though, in the sense you don't have to really worry all the cyclicalities is adjusted and then you can just nicely and safely collect your dividends because it's as a group, they'll be paying always good dividends. So that that is definitely interesting. Uh, and also, I think you're, you're positioning it as a safe haven in a turbulent market when we expect that there can be further sell-off. That is also valid. The only concern I would have is at P20, is it a safe haven? Because are they, it's almost like priced like a growth stock at this point. Yeah, I ignore the, I, you know, my, my favorite metrics are EBIT, EV, and I like, I look at return on invested capital, even though I think that as I've sort of written about in the past, that's a highly mean reverting series and you have to find some strong reason why that won't mean revert. I think the best metric aside from EV, EBIT is EV free cash flow. Free cash flow is a little bit more. There's a little bit more management discretion in free cash flow than there is in EBIT. EBIT is sort of, I know that everybody says, you know, Buffett's got this quote out there where he says, you know, EBITDA or manga, EBITDA is like liar learnings. That's true, but you have to understand the perspective, understand why they say that. They say that in relation to management teams telling you what the EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA numbers are, or in that was in the context of a leverage buyout boom where people were using EBITDA multiples for acquisitions and EBITDA doesn't help you pay down debt. Free cash flow helps you pay down debt. I do these calculations myself. I don't care what management's estimate for adjusted EBIT is. Like I, I couldn't tell you what it is for any of the companies that I look at. I don't, I don't even, I don't care. I just don't look at it. This is my own calculation. I calculate, I actually calculate, it's called operating earnings. I calculate it from the top of the income statement down rather than reconstructing EBIT from the bottom of the income statement up because it's a little bit more, you know, you can, it's hard to lie about revenues, although people do lie about revenues because there's net revenue and so on. There are ways to lie about it, but for the most part, revenues are real. Everything else that falls under that has a little bit of discretion in it. I calculate it from the top down. It's not management's calculation is the point that I make. So I like EBIT. I also like free cash flow, but there's much more management discretion in what free cash flow is. They can make decisions about, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can play with free cash flow. Having said that, buybacks and dividends, you cannot lie about those. Those things actually happen. You can, you can declare a buyback and not do it. That's a, that's a, lots of them do that. That's why I don't look at management. What management says, again, I'm looking at what management has done in relation to buybacks and their track record here is very, very good. So that 7% free cash flow yield is real, 3.5% dividend yield is real, and the 26% of the outstanding stock that they've bought back is real. So all of those things together that tells me that the free cash flow is likely real because they're actually employing that. So buybacks, again, something it's a reasonably controversial topic. It has most management teams aren't very good at buying back stock or they're using it to mop up share issuance on the other side. There's a lot of share-based compensation. They buy back enough stock that the stock price doesn't move. Oh, sorry, the shares out doesn't move. So th this is an instance where shares out has come down materially. And so that's real. That's a real buyback. And that for me, that counts. So I agree with you that the PE might be sort of optically high, but there are lots of decisions that by the time you get to the bottom of the, the income statement, there are lots of decisions that go into how much they report. And when they get to this size, they've got an office of the chief financial officer. They are, there's a lot of engineering in that, which is why I try to sort of ignore some of those metrics because it's, you know, 
Jack, Jack Welsh used to say to, you know, he had these things called acquisition uh, reserves and they just, he'd say, I, I need another penny because I'm going to hit that number. I need $20 million out of that acquisition reserve and, and, his, and they'd financially engineer it and they'd give it to him. So, I don't necessarily look at the bottom line. I'm trying to look a little bit further up the income statement. I'm trying to look at the cash flow statement and I'm trying to look at shares out and, and actually making sure that what they, are, what they are sort of representing as happening is, is actually happening in the financial statements, which is why I'm more quantitative than, than sort of, which is a big distinction between me and say Buffett and other guys like who are actual real investors who know how to analyze businesses and do that sort of stuff. You know, so Spotify for me is a difficult one because it's not mature enough for me to really do any financial analysis on. Amgen has been around for so long. It's a mature business. The risk is the decline. That's a real risk, but I think it's ameliorated by the fact that they've got plenty of money to play with. They will be generating f- money for a long time into the future. I think it's reasonably safe, about as safe as it gets. But as I say, I don't particularly like biotechs as part of a basket. I think they're fine. The first thing I thought of whenever I saw it was, um, didn't we just do Colgate? Oh, wait, this is, <laughs> this is Amgen. Oh, this is a different stock. No, sorry, for, for people out there who's like, why is Dick talking about Colgate? It was Toby's pick last time. It's a very Toby type of, of pick. You know, you, you look at the 10-year financials here and you just see slow and steady wins the race. Revenue go up. You see dividends are hiked every year. You see shares are being bought back. All the, like, it's, just, it's a Toby type of pick. And remember the old fable, right? Like slow and steady wins the race. And so I think it is important also to understand like who is pitching with stock and why are they doing that? So Toby has a basket approach. I want to say 30-ish. Please correct me if I'm wrong. 30 in my large cap, 100 in my small cap. Yep. And you have a, a huge part of your own net worth in, uh, in your funds, which, which uh, I think is admirable and, and the way to do it. Whenever I talk about a pick like a Spotify, I also talked about I think last time was process I talked about. They are, in, in Toby's words, he, last time he said, racy stocks. So I'm, I've got to use that expression. I don't know if process is so racy. I think process is, process is more, much more sort of special situation if you understand. You can, I, can, I can get there on process. Spotify is a different question, but I, I don't have, I'm, not, I'm not anti-Spotify. I'm just, you know, I have my own biases when it comes to these things. Yeah, and, and also to, to your point, uh, and what we talked about before about wh- where this coming from, you know, I, I own five stocks. I'm not as smart as, as Toby to, to own a lot of stocks. So I, I guess you, could, you can also say that I my part- two, I own two stocks, to be fair. <laughs> I own Zig and Deep, and, and they, oh, own, right. they own everything. But the only things that I ever mention on the show are things that I do own in the funds. And having said that, there's always a possibility that I sell out in the next quarterly rebalance. So I should make that clear as well. The decision is sort of largely out of my hands. It's I look at the entire universe, what looks cheap, what's, what, moves, what looks expensive. So things, I've pitched a few things that I have then, you know, have had a little run and I've rolled out of pretty quickly. I, and I, sometimes I feel like I should just make that clear to people that I, this could be rebalanced out of at the next rebalance date, which would be, uh, which, is the, which is the sort of quarter end in March. I really like this pick and I'm reading this book right now. It's called Competition Demystified. It's written by uh, Bruce Greenwald. I would highly recommend that book. So what is typically taught at business schools is something called Porter's Five Forces. And he's talking about the competitive situation and how you should look at it uh, as a business person, but you can also say as an investor. And even Buffett has talked about Porter's Five Forces. 
in one of the shareholders meetings. Actually, well, to be fair, someone quoted Portis Five Forces, then ran through it, and Buffett was like, "Yeah, I think I do. I think I think I'm doing that. I just didn't know it was called that." But apparently it's been somewhat ordained by Buffett. And so those five forces, that's threat of substitutes, power of customers, power of suppliers, competition in the industry, and barriers of entry. And what Bruce Greenwald is saying, and for those of you who don't know uh, Bruce Greenwald, um, so he's, he's teaching, uh, I don't know if he's anymore, he's but retired. he's retired, right. Yeah, but he used to teach uh, Graham's old course at Columbia University and uh, quite an icon in, in uh, the niche of value investing. And so... He's saying, no, part of five forces, that's way, that's way too complicated. It's only one. And the one thing to, to think about, that's barriers of entry. And he has these amazing case studies about barriers of entry. And so one of the things he's saying is that you can typically see that through stable market share and then the high consistent return on invested capital. And, and to your point before, Tobin, you talked about how how people uh, in, in biotech and in, in, in pharmaceuticals, how they don't compete too much with each other. And they do that for good reason. I, I'm going to give you the very short version. You can, you can read the 387, whatever, page uh, version in competition, demystified. But it's, it's really about, it's, it's painful whenever you start competing on price and like everyone loses. Well, the customer wins, but you can sort of like do different things in terms of signal uh, to, uh, to competitors that you don't want to go into a price war. And uh, which is, if you, if you pick up the phone and call your competitor, it's illegal. But if you signal it different ways, it's not illegal, but you can still make a lot of money, which is the irony of it all. But you, you, you can do different things. And so what's interesting in this industry, you have high barriers of entry. And you can typically also see that because you have high fixed costs. It's like extremely expensive to be in, in, in this space, but also very low marginal costs. And so what these major companies do is that they, comp- they have different drugs and they don't want to step too much on each other's toes because then they know that they will start, the competitor will start stepping on your toes. And remember, a price competition is really painful if you're the bigger player. You might be thinking, I need to lower my prices because I'm the bigger player and I want to keep the entrant out. But think about it, if you have 90% of the market and you're lowering the prices, you're the one who are getting hurt the most. I can say from a, from a competition standpoint, whenever you look at the numbers, they're absolutely beautiful with high barriers of entry. And then if you can just and this is just on, on a really note, it's just because when, at the time of recording, like all the rates is about this new chatbot and you know, what Google is doing and their BART and all of that. So I just want to, I just want to, now we're talking about barriers of entry. I just want to pull up a quote here from Charlie Munger from 2009. Google has a huge new mode. In fact, I've probably never seen such a wide mode. I just kind of feel how interesting that is in the discussion and what we're seeing right now when we talk about barriers of entry and Look what's happening right now. I, I don't know. Harry knows a lot more about that and whether that's truly, you know, if Google still have the same barrier of entry, but it's just even the best barrier of entries, they are, they are eventually they'll be broken down one way or the other. I don't know if it's going to happen this time around with this chatbot. I don't know if it's going to happen in, for, for Amgen, but it will eventually happen. I guess that's, that's what I'm trying to say here. Let me throw it back over to you, uh, Harry or, or Toby. It happens quite a lot in biotech because the because the patent runs out. That's the that's my main objection to it. You know, you would never. I don't. I think it would be highly unlikely to see Buffett buying something like this. Like Buffett doesn't buy biotech. He doesn't really buy pharma. So I always feel very uncomfortable when I buy this. If the guy who really understands competition won't touch this stuff, what am I doing in it? And the way that I justify it is it's a little bit of a basket, and it has quantitative features that attract me. But if I had one bullet, I wouldn't spend it on this thing. Yeah, I think uh, 
you brought up a good point about Munger saying that Google has the deepest more. Well, he also bought into Alibaba. So I think, and that is also having its own trouble. And that, that goes to say that, you know, we all should be humble when somebody like Munger can get it wrong. Regarding chat GPT though, I think it's, it's phenomenal. If you haven't used it, I highly recommend. Bing recently integrated ChatGPT into Bing. And this goes to tell the, the staying power that Microsoft has. I think they have been at, at search. I was back working at Yahoo when they acquired the search division of Yahoo. And they have the capacity to suffer almost for decades. And, and the other thing I was looking at was like, if you look at decade after decade among the top 10 companies uh, from tech, Many came and go. Microsoft has always been there. So I, I would say we have to be careful betting against Microsoft. And yeah, and looking, and, and also the culture, like, you know, Microsoft culture has transformed. I think that's Satya Nadella. I think Bomber was kind of driving it to the ground in a way, but Satya really rescued it. But I think Google is looking more like uh, the old player here and not, you know, almost being forced to innovate in this case. So the, the optics is bad. And even when they did come out with that demo, I don't know who is their marketing team suggesting the names like Bard, like, you know, and also like, you know, the dead demo had some glitches in it and it, it, it just shows that, you know, they were not prepared. The thing is that the question is sometimes not who has the better technology. It's, you know, Buffett's analysis is often at the consumer, at the person who actually consumes this product, how will they consume it? And I think about it too. Like I have heard that Bing delivers better search results than Google. And now with this integration of chat GDP, GPT, I was using it a little bit because I kind of, I think it's fun to chat to it. And people have come up with some great questions that you can really test the limits of it. But I went to use it this morning and it was over capacity and it wouldn't let me in. When I go to search something, I just type it into the Chrome bar and I don't even think about it. Like I would have to add an extra step going to Bing. I'm like, I, w- I am trying to do it because I want to, s- I like having a second competitor in there. I, I'm one of the guys who uses um, Lyft rather than Uber because I want I want the competitor for Uber, but I it's a kind of a hassle. And like if I'm being honest, still most of my searches are going to be into the ones that I don't even think about. They're going to go into the Chrome search bar, and I'm going to type that in and and use that. It's hard to change behavior. It's really really hard to change behavior. And I have Gmail powers the back end of my business email. It's my private email. I use YouTube. I pay for YouTube. You know, Google has Google has one of the great moats that sits a little bit below the line of sight, which I think is one of the best kind of moats to have that people don't even know that it's there. Like there are lots of companies out there like that that you've never heard of them. They just do all of the back end of something and they basically just put their price up a little bit every year and you pay it because it's a key part of some bigger thing and you don't even know that you're paying it. Like those those are the good businesses to have, but everybody else knows about them too, so they're never cheap. That's a very good point. Toby. In fact, the power is in the distribution, not just in the technology. And in fact, it's almost like the role is reversed. If you go back to 2000 or 98, 99, Microsoft was in the position of Google. And that's how they killed Netscape Navigator, right? Because they could, Microsoft operating system was like Google Chrome, basically today, that you you would just use whatever the operating system gave you. But over a period of time, they lost the share of their distribution channel, basically. And that was what made Microsoft weak at that point of time that they had this really bad phase in the late uh, 
like, you know, late 90s, early 2000, like late 2000, sorry. So uh, the bomber years, basically. I think Google is at that cusp right now. They control the distribution channel, as you said. I think I totally agree with you that I would, it would take me a lot of effort to go to Bing and search, whereas here I'm just typing into the Chrome browser. As long as they own the browser, they get the, get my search. However, what has happened over a period of time is the searches that are really valuable, high returns in terms of pay-per-click, are the ones that I'm searching for products or something like that. Nowadays, I directly go to Amazon to do that. So what is happening is a lot of different competitors are taking away the sh mind share of entry point of the distribution channel away from Google. And I think Microsoft is and definitely understands this. So they came up with this new Edge browser, which has ChatGPT integrated. And I, I have to still try it, but I, I heard that it can even write a letter for you right from the browser, all that stuff. So they, they're definitely trying hard. I can see that, that Satya and Microsoft team are definitely trying hard. To and they're focused on it too. They've said yeah. that the search margins are huge and they're going to have a shot at them anyway. Yeah. Whether they will succeed or not, I think time will tell. But I guess the days of Google being complacent are over, is what I would say. And that has been going on for a couple of years now. This is ChatGPT is one other blow at the uh, moat. But I think Amazon actually, it's not visible, but actually Amazon is the one who is taking away a lion share of Google's sponsored search ad share. Because a lot of valuable search is now going to Amazon, not Google. The other point worth making is that the, the, the way that these moats get crossed is not sort of a direct competitor. It's something that comes out of the blue in the same way that the browser sort of overcame Microsoft's desktop dominance. The next level is probably something, I don't, I don't know if it's the metaverse, but that idea is the kind of idea that it will be. It'll be something where you know, somebody, I saw it was circulating around on Twitter yesterday. Somebody wrote this long, it, it came out in 1979. It's very old. And they said, you know, that, and that was back when people were having to talk to computers and you had to, be a, had to be able to program in order to talk to a computer. And we've clearly come a long way where you don't have to be a programmer anymore to get it to do a lot of stuff. But it's, it's going to get to that point where it's just a conversation. And at that point, you're sort of in the metaverse where you say, this is what I need you to do. And the AI and the computer goes and does that. That would have sounded crazy five years ago. It doesn't sound so crazy now, even though I think that's an incredibly difficult computer. That's a processing logistical nightmare now. It's not anytime soon, but at some point in the future, you will just have a little wristwatch and say it to the ether and it'll go away and do it and it'll know what you're talking about. And at that point, is it Chrome? That seems unlikely, right? It's some, I don't know who it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's Facebook. It's Meta. It's the Metaverse. <laughs> It's crazy. Who knows what's going to happen? I, I tried playing around with the chat robot, GPT, and to me, it was more like just like playing around, just like just for fun. And I was looking at it probably because I'm super biased. I'm, I invested in, in Alphabet a long time ago, knowing that, of course, no one could break down this mode like Manga talked about, right? So I wasn't, I wasn't too impressed other than it was, it was fun to play around. And then I speak to our, our YouTube host, Ronikan. She says, yeah, whenever we talk about a new... Uh, a new topic. I just ask, you know, the chatbot to write it for me, and then I just edit and like do my own thing. So it's mine. But you know, that's where I start. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like yeah. I did not see that one coming at all. So I guess the jury is still out. 
What's going to happen? It's quite useful for programming, Harry. You might know better, but people can ask it like, how would you get this thing to do this? And its answers are instantaneous and exactly right with the little bit of code that you need. Like That is incredibly powerful. Yeah, I played around, played around with it. I was fascinated. Like it could just generate code. You tell it the problem and then let's say you say, write a uh, program in Python or Java to scrape the web and search for this content. And it will actually give you the code. Or you say, write a story for based on following characters or like animals. It will write you the story. But I think going the risk that Google has is just not about market share. What is not visible to most of us is these are really 10x engineers, really Uber engineers who are working on this. And there are only a few of them, if you think about it. And the risk for Google is losing those to OpenAI. Because in the valley today, OpenAI is the Google of 2000. That is the cool new kid on the block. And Google is this old company, which is bureaucratic and big, right? So think about from an engineering talent perspective as well. Where would the top talent flow? And the recent layoff Google did might actually be an impetus or an opportunity for OpenAI to steal more engineers from. And Microsoft is bankrolling OpenAI. So it's like they are on offensive. So it, it is going to be very interesting how this will play out. And, and, and I don't think the story is over yet in the sense I, I would not write off Google at this point of time. They have the kind of round one they have lost it is how I see it. But there are more rounds to go. Yeah, early, early days. Let's end on that note, Jens. As always, thank you so much for making time to come on the show and, and talk about chatbots, biotech, Disney, and whatnot. It's always a pleasure speaking with you two, uh, Jens. As always, I would like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience where they can learn more about you. Toby? I manage a firm called Acquirers Funds. We have two ETFs, Zig, the Acquirers Fund, which is um, small, uh, sorry, mid-cap, large-cap, deep value in the US. And I have a small and micro fund called Deep. I have a website, acquirersmultiple.com, where you can get free stock picks that are similar to the one that I did. They're quantitatively generated. And I've written some books. Um, most recent one was Acquirers Multiple, which came out in 2017. I'm working on a new one right now. ChatGPT is writing it for me. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I always love coming on. Good seeing you too, Harry. Yeah, same here, Toby and Steg. Anyone can find me on my blog, bitsbusiness.com. I hang out in Twitter. Hari Rama is my handle, H-A-R-I-R-A-M-A. Look forward to the conversations there as well. Uh, but this was fun hanging out with you guys. Thank you. It was fun, guys, and I hope that the audience are going to want to hang out with us. I think we all plan on going to Omaha here in, in May, so if all starts, ali- starts aligned, uh, we're going we're gonna to put a link in the show notes. We're going to have some events there, and people can come and talk about dog investing, whatever they want to talk about, so that should be, should be good fun. Jens, thank you again so much for your, your time. I look forward to seeing you in, uh, in Omaha soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. 
Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.